a veterinarian, Dr. Nicole Cressy, mm-hmm. and she is with Cardinal Veterinary Services. Yes. And that is a uh, LLC that you have founded how long ago? Just over a year ago. Just over a year ago. So we're going to be talking with you about all things uh, veterinary related. But before we uh, do that, tell us about yourself, where you grew up, and what it was that made you start thinking about becoming a veterinarian. Sure. So I am originally from Altoona, Iowa. And I actually grew up in town, not much farm exposure beyond uh, grandma and grandpa's hobby farm. So they always had a couple cows, a couple hogs, uh, enough to keep meat in our freezer, quite honestly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in high school, I had the opportunity to job shadow at our local small animal clinic and did that oh, at least three of the four years. Mm-hmm. Um and I was like, eh, you know, I, I like it, but I'm not sure until I started the animal science classes um, at school. And then I was like, mm, I like large animals a little bit more than small animals at the time. So much, in fact, that I decided I was going to go to animal science um, for college. Uh, my mom and dad were both Iowa State University alumni, and so Ames, Iowa is just a hop, skip, and a jump 40 miles from, from us in Altoona. We had made many, many trips as I grew up there, so I was pretty familiar with that, and they also have a great animal science program. So I went up and got my bachelor of science degree, four years, did that. Um, if you're thinking about veterinary medicine, I recommend having that backup degree because honestly, there are several folks that decide they don't actually want to be a vet once they go to school go to, to be school. a vet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a backup plan there. Okay. Um, when I was in, in Ames for undergrad, I got involved in pre-vet club. I got involved in the block and bridal club and had exposure to hogs and cattle and, and just got my feet more wet. And I was like, Ooh, I, I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the summers, I actually went a whole different direction and I was a summer zookeeper in, in Omaha at the Henry Dorley zoo, which I liked, but knew I didn't like it enough that I didn't want to pursue exotic animals. <laughs> right. So when you, I, I have to mind that vein for just a second. So I assume that that's a fully functional zoo with lions and tigers and bears and. Mm-hmm. They had quite a few things. Um, specifically, I worked my summers, three of the four summers I was there, I was on the APS crew, which is the apes, the pachyderms, and the sea lions. So I cleaned up after gorillas and orangutans, scooped a lot of elephant and rhino dung. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I also got to um, help with the training on the sea lions there. So it was a very cool variety of things to do. And as I went the next summer and the next summer pretty much they said here's your keys here's your walkie-talkie here's everything you need you are one of us and you just get paid less because <laughs> you're only here for the summer right but I, I i had that opportunity and i wouldn't trade it i i got to do a lot of cool things great experience not not everybody can say hey i got to snuggle with a gorilla and orangutan baby today wow <laughs> so i it was pretty cool to be able to do that. Yeah, sounds like a great, um, 
a, a great memory. So I, do, I don't mean yeah. to interrupt. So you yeah, uh, you graduate from college, you, you're working at the uh, zoo, and then you go where? Well, so I actually worked at the zoo summers of college. Okay. So I did it in between. So then once I graduated um, animal science, after that four years, I went right to vet school. I see. Yep. So I applied what would have been my senior year of animal science to get into the the veterinary science program. And was that also at Iowa State? It was. I just stayed the course in Ames. Yeah. Um, honestly, I told myself, well, if I don't get into vet school, I'll do something in the animal science land. I'll either go on to grad school and do something there or, or find a job within that industry. I did know I wanted to stay in the animal agriculture industry. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's what I did. And, um, in vet school, it's a very, very hard four years. You go and you're in class your first, second, and third year. And then that summer, right after third year, you start your fourth year. So it's a full 12-month rotation, essentially. So your fourth year, you're actually practicing underneath someone, somewhere, sort of? Sort of. It's clinical rotation. So you get to be exposed to different sectors. So for me, I was tracking large animal or or production animal. So I spent and went like to a couple different hog farms, um, big producers, and shadowed with their veterinarians for a couple of sets of two weeks. Mm -hmm. I actually did two rotations down, um, one in... Missouri and then I drove on down to Oklahoma and so I spent two weeks calving and then I did two week feedlot rotation as far as beef cattle goes. Um, And so what is Cardinal Veterinary Services providing today? What are you uh, are you uh, dealing strictly with large animals or farm animals or? Yep so Cardinal Veterinary Services is mainly focused on our large animals at this point. Uh, So that's your beef cattle your I've dipped a little bit into dairy cattle. Um, I'll see horses. There is a limited amount of things I can do for the horse, but you can always call and say, hey, can can you do this? And mm-hmm. I can say yes or no. Um, sheep and goats, hogs, they're always going to be my favorite. I will probably not turn you down if you call me about a pig. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm just... With this new next year, my goal is to dip just a little bit into doing some small animal medicine. Pretty easy stuff that we can do in a home situation. Okay. Vaccines. Minor illnesses. But anything that's going to require like further diagnostics, you're going to have to go to somewhere that has a brick and mortar. So an actual building to go into. Because a lot of those times you need blood work and maybe you need it now. Well, I don't have a blood machine, so I can't get those diagnostics to you stat. Uh, whereas a lot of the brick and mortar clinics, you can pull the blood, you can get your CBC and your chemistry results right then. Right. Or if you ever think your dog broke its leg or it's vomiting and we don't know why, we need to do x-rays. We need to look internally. So, again, I don't have an x-ray machine. So that's where your brick and mortar building um is needed and so there are a host of capable veterinarians down here in southern illinois that have buildings um and so i'm kind of an additional service out here i would say to help with um the needs that there are because i don't know since we moved back in fall of 2020 i don't know how many people have said hey i can't get in i can't 
get someone out here to the farm. And so that was kind of my reason for opening Cardinal Veterinary Services. You saw an opening in the marketplace, particularly for the farmers, and said, maybe I can fill that a couple days a week. You also do work at a traditional brick-and-mortar vet? I do. I do. I work at a traditional brick-and-mortar vet. I'm down at Striegel Animal Hospital in Carbondale, um, and we... We're kind of a cool clinic because we actually are AHA accredited, which means that we go above and beyond um, certain standards that we want to provide you with the best of care. And so we feel like it's important to meet a certain set of guidelines, standards. And mm-hmm. so we strive to maintain and achieve that. Well, Striegel's has been around a long time and they've got a really good reputation. <laughs> they have been around a long time. Um, I grew up in Carbondale and just the Striegel name itself as a family name has got a, a, a good reputation. It's one of those old school names in Carbondale that everybody recognizes. So. Sure, sure. And the current owner... Um, Owners have have really worked to bring some neat things to the area that other clinics don't have. Um, Specifically, we have an underwater uh, hydrotherapy treadmill. What? We do. An underwater hydrotherapy treadmill. That sounds like an underwater treadmill. It is. It is. So basically, we load our patient in, we fill it up with water, and then that allows for easier exercise or work so if a dog has had surgery to correct like a cranial cruciate ligament or similar to an ACL tear in a person Mm -hmm. okay so we can rehab that we have dogs commonly have back issues okay yes um some of them go to surgery where we've been seeing one right now that has been to surgery and they Uh, owners contact us and we're doing hydrotherapy a couple times a week on this dog and and helping build that muscle strength back um, and working so hopefully he can go back to walking yeah um, as far as that goes it's a great form of exercise for our overweight pets which is a whole nother conversation Uh (laughs) uh-huh one one we'll probably probably get into here momentarily but but yeah we have that we have uh, laser therapy for our animals that are in acute pain. Uh, we also have a veterinarian that comes in about once a month and she does acupuncture for chronic pain. Acupuncture. Yep. Yep. So How do you give acupuncture to a dog? Pins. <laughs> Same way for anybody. Just, yeah. But, uh, they, I mean, a dog won't hold still for that, will they? A lot of dogs will hold really still, actually, because they, they find that they enjoy it. Really? It's, it's pain relieving. It makes them more comfortable. I have learned something today. So, yeah, there's a lot of the trends out there in human medicine that we can surely apply to veterinary medicine. And and Striegel has explored some of those options. And and I imagine as we continue in the future, we will get newer things as they become available. Sure, sure. Uh, Nicole Cressy is in the studio with me today. She is with Striegel Animal Hospital and also has her own uh, practice helping particularly farmers, and that is Cardinal Veterinary Services. Nicole, uh, when it comes to Cardinal Veterinary Services, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Yep, so you can call or text. Um, phone number is 618 357 0983. 
I also have a Facebook page. You can look up Cardinal Veterinary Services. And I have a website, cardinalveterinaryservices.com. So if you can't get a hold of us one of those three ways. <laughs> yeah. And, and I found your uh, yep. business card on the board up at uh, Brunsey's Cafe. That's that is I... true. My, my husband's been pretty good at dropping off cards at the local businesses around Sparta, Ava, Pinckneyville. They, they've been traveling. They have been. <laughs> well, we'll take the first break of the day. And when we come back, uh, we're going to ask Nicole about a common conversation I see playing out on social media. And that's how cold is too cold for a dog to be outside. We'll talk about that when we come back after this quick break. One of the things I was happy that you mentioned before we got on the air, Nicole, and I want to talk about is that being a veterinarian is a difficult job in that you are dealing with people's pets and obviously they love their pets and um, oftentimes you're working with people in high stress situations and when you're working with people in high stress situations it's stressful for veterinarians themselves um, you're not getting paid necessarily the same way that doctors are in human health care. So there are a lot of stresses on veterinarians uh, these days. And so it also seems like there aren't enough veterinarians. Honestly, it seems like anytime I call local veterinarians, uh, it's quite a while to get an appointment. uh, And I'm not faulting them for that. It's just that it seems like they're all overworked. Am I seeing this correctly? Yeah, (laughs) we definitely stay busy, for sure. Um, And that has been an increased trend, especially with COVID um, and the whole pandemic that has been happening for the past couple years now. Um, I, before I came back here to Southern Illinois, I was in Wyoming and um, I was seeing somewhere between 25 and 35 appointments a day in, in that situation. Um, down here, I don't see as many, but we had a whole different, um, we have a whole different way of bringing in our patients. When I started working down at Striegel, we were doing curbside. Well, that means that we bring your pet into the building. We look at your pet. We have to call you a few times, get all the information. And then once I, as a doctor, look at your pet, I might have more questions And then I'm going to tell you what I find. And inherently, some of that takes longer Mm -hmm. than if you got to come in the building and I got to be one-on-one. Okay. Um, And also, some of that depends on how much time we get to spend with our clients um, and how much time we can denote each day or or for each appointment, you know. (laughs) So we typically try to go 30-minute appointments. Um, which some clinics, like where I was in Wyoming, they were 15-minute appointments. So I had to get a whole lot of information into that 15 minutes of time as far as that goes. So some of it depends, you know, how many can you physically see on a day within your given slot. Um, Now, if there were a vaccine appointment and your pet was happy and healthy and didn't have any concerns, we can probably get that done in 15 minutes pretty easily. But if you bring me in a pet who has been vomiting or having diarrhea for seven days, I'm going to spend more time working up your patient and trying to figure out what is wrong with that patient so that we can get a better idea of how to treat them. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
um, as far as that goes. So yeah, I would say in general, the whole industry, we are feeling the stress. Um, when people were home for COVID quarantines, they found a lot more problems with their animals too, because they were there watching them. They were there interacting with them a lot more. And so they were picking up on these differences that maybe they wouldn't have seen if they were working their normal eight to five. Right. As far as that goes. So, um, I don't know if it's officially been studied either or, 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 you know, ruled one way or the other, but it feels like a lot more people got pets during these last few years. Yes, it does. <laughs> and, and so more pets means that we need to have someone to see them and, and take care of them. And we're not necessarily meeting that demand, I would say, in the as, as people are coming out of vet school. Um, you know, the young grads are trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. They are trying to also make a living to pay back their debt right it is ridiculous how how much debt load um a veterinary graduates with how much does it cost to go to vet school so on uh, and it depends on where you go sure so in state versus out of state or out of country we have lots of veterinarians that end up going out of country um when i was in school that there were only 27 vet schools they have i think added about five now and I graduated in 2011 so so there are more schools out there um, but the average student graduates with somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 of debt Wow so you have to remember a lot of people do that for your degree so you have your undergrad and then you have your vet school fees on top of that so you got vets coming out with three quarters of a million dollars in student loan debt what? yeah yeah amazing and our income, to be honest, does not meet that need. Right. <laughs> when when uh, we have to pay a, almost a mortgage payment um, for some people, that's a lot. That's a lot to take on um, as far as that goes. And, and it depends on your stage of life. If you're young and single and you don't have anybody else there, that's a big deal. Sure. Whereas if you were married and, and there's two of you making an income, maybe it's less stressful. Maybe it's not. And then you add kids in the mix of things, and who knows? It's all it's all up in the air, and and some of it's how well you manage your course, budget, of course. course. Um, but to be in in general, that debt to income and that relationship, it doesn't pay. <laughs> well, it's it not, just doesn't. <laughs> it, it's it's a reality, and it's worth talking about. So be kind to your uh, <laughs> veterinarian. Uh, and think about those things as you uh, uh, work with them and they work with you uh, to make sure your your pet is staying healthy. Now, one of the things that I mentioned before the last break uh, comes down to this question that seems to be more prevalent all the time since social media uh, reared its ugly head 20 years ago or so. And that is, how cold is too cold for a dog to be outside? And I know that the answer is, it depends. But what does it depend upon, Dr. Cressy? Sure. That, that is definitely a depend situation. Um, some of it's breed. Okay. So think about your breeds who were bred to be out in the cold in the mountains. I have a St. Bernard. If I would let him, he would stay outside all the time. Mm -hmm. um, because he's got that fur. 
I prefer that he is inside because he is also naughty and eats things he's not supposed to. And I don't want to have a foreign body surgery on my dog. Right. So he don't get to stay outside like he wants to. But when it's cold and snowing, he likes to lay outside in the snow. Right. Your huskies, your Arctic breeds, your Great Pyrenees, you know, those big furry breeds. They they were bred to be outside and withstand some of that weather. Right. Um. On the other hand, I have a boxer lab mix, for for instance, and she's short hair. She has allergies. So she would rather be inside on my couch in the air conditioning or under a blanket mm-hmm. <laughs> in the weather extremes. She would not be one to stay outside. Um, that being said, you know, anytime a dog needs to be outside, obviously we got to provide certain things. They need access to water. Of course, more in that hot, hot time. They have to have ample water. They should have access to some sort of shelter to meet that situational needs. If it's hot, they need shade. If it's cold, they need to be able to get out of the wind or rainy or snow. You know, they they need to be able to get outside, out of the elements. But if they have a doghouse, if they have, you know, bedding in that doghouse, all of that is going to affect their ability to regulate. Just like you and I, you know. Right. If it is less than 32 degrees and freezing and a wind chill of, you know, minus 28, you have to put more layers on to keep yourself warmer. So you have to assess the situation and say, okay, well, I know the dogs are going to be outside today. I got to provide ample heat. Um, straw, straw, extra blankets, something for them to be able to stay warm and regulate. I don't know that there's any situation where the Chihuahua dog would be outside or some of these small, <laughs> some of these tiny, tiny breeds. Toy breeds I feel as like they, they, yes, I feel like they are more at increased risk of freezing. Sure, <laughs> you know, but like I said. The big old St. Bernard, the Great Pyrenees dog, you know, they they want to be outside and they're perfectly happy. The other situation is what they've grown up doing. If they have always been outside and that is where they have learned to be, they are acclimated to their situation. Right. So if you acclimate, then again, maybe it's okay. So it's a case by case basis. It, is. it surely is. Dr. Nicole Cressy with us. We're coming into uh, spring and summer. Mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, these are all major concerns. Walk us through just the basic best practices that people need to be doing to make sure that these uh, insect-carrying, disease-carrying insects, I should Mm say, don't end up putting your dog or cat into a bad situation. Sure, sure, yes. All the flying insects that are out now um, have potential to carry some disease. Now, that's going to affect your dogs or cats, but horses, cattle, etc. They all have potential to, to carry diseases to your animals. And so prevention is key on that. Um, for dogs and cats, if, I, if it were a perfect world, everyone would be, would be on a flea and tick preventative and a heartworm preventative. All 12, year, 12 months of the year, year-round, never fail. Because that's going to provide your animal the best protection. Now, there's people out there listening right now who say, yeah, I know, doctor, but 
There's no fleas in my yard in January when it's 10 degrees. There's no mosquitoes. There's no flies flying around. You know, I forget about it during those months. Right? And that's easy to say. It does not freeze hard enough long enough down here to kill those suckers. Out in Wyoming where I was, when it was frozen for greater than two weeks, okay, we can talk about laxing in some of our preventatives. Okay. Down here in southern Illinois, nah. Mm -hmm. I see fleas. I see ticks. I see flying insects all year around. We have the random 80 day, eighty degree days in March or right. 60 degree days in January. It's a prime time for those little creatures to decide to pop out. Pop out. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, you do not want fleas in your house. It takes anywhere from three to six to nine months to get them back out. Yeah. So I would just spend the invest in your pet get your preventatives obviously i'm a veterinarian i love it when you are able to support me and get the products from me right i also have a bias that i think my products are better than what you can get from the store sure okay <laughs> um and when you buy your products from your veterinarian one you're supporting them right locally you're you're helping them stay in business to serve you number two the products we choose we are going to back them. If you buy your flea and tick preventative off the internet, you cannot call the internet company and say, hey, my pet's having a reaction. Right. If you buy it from us, you can call us and one, we're going to help work you through and take care of your animal. And two, sometimes we're even able to call the company and help get um, financial support from them. Sure. to treat your animal so you don't get that guarantee from the internet sources as far as that goes and then of course there's the whole situation of is it actually what it says it is on the box or in the tube have you, you seen situations where people order stuff online and it isn't what it says it is so personally i haven't um in my in in my experience i have not but there are plenty of uh, posts. I'm in a veterinary group on Facebook, you know, as probably lots of us are, have our specific groups that we follow, but you know, like they pop it up. Yeah. That's a fake product. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you as, as pet owners may not recognize that. Sure. Um, and that's not to say us as veterinarians are always going to recognize it, but we might take the time and call in and get your get the number off the product and be like, hey, is this a legit product or is it contraband? Right, right. <laughs> and in the, this day and age, it would be an easy place to uh, yeah. try to fake something. Uh, yeah. Last question before we take another break. I'm dead guilty of this. Uh, I have one-year-old twin boys, and in the mornings, uh, they will usually have like some scrambled eggs or something and they throw about half of it on the floor and they eat about half of it. Well, I'll let um, Sugarfoot inside and she'll run around and she'll clean up, you know, a uh, half spoonful and a half of scrambled eggs off the floor and then she goes back outside. Now, I probably shouldn't be doing that because you're not supposed to feed, you know, your dog's table scraps is what I've heard. Uh, is that true? And why shouldn't I be doing that? Sure. So just like anything, right, sometimes too much of a good thing is bad for us. Right. Um, there are most definitely certain foods that your dog should not eat because they are inherently toxic, i.e. things that come to mind are chocolate, onions, garlic, grapes. Um, I would say those are probably my top things that, that just 
why, stick out there. Why are grapes toxic to a dog? There is a chemical in their skin that can lead to dogs having kidney failure. Really? Mm-hmm. The hard part with that is that we don't exactly know um, how much is toxic, and it is definitely specifically dog-dependent. It's not dose-dependent, so there's not a number we can say mm. is going to be toxic. It is sometimes literally dog-dependent. Wow. <laughs> so um, I know if you were at my house and, and watching me feed, feed the kids grapes, um, my dogs are locked up in the other room, uh-huh. and I am a nutcase about looking at the floor to make sure there's none <laughs> to make sure there are none there now have the dogs got into it yes and don't forget grapes and raisins equal the same thing <laughs> of course one's just a dried product of the yes. other <laughs> yes so all of those are of concern the other thing that can happen when a dog's not used to people food or table scraps is that it can throw their gi system off and then they can lead to vomiting or diarrhea mm. okay um, and then the last probably big thing for me, too, is that people forget if they are eating more calories in terms of people food, they need to have less dog food. Mm-hmm. And a lot mm-hmm. of people give them the table scraps and then shovel them the same amount of dog food they're yeah. getting. And then you wind up with obese yes. dogs, which I'm sure you yes. see all the time. Every day, multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> and cats. It's not just a dog thing. <laughs> well, and I think it's because people feel guilty they're leaving the house and the dog doesn't want to go outside so they throw a handful of treats out there or whatever you know all this food is used to bribe your dog or cat or whatever to do this or do that um, and it adds up uh, Mm -hmm. over time so uh, dr nicole cressy uh, very generous with her time today visiting with us she is with cardinal veterinary services and also with striegel animal hospital if you have a question for uh, dr cressy text message it into our text line at 618 426-3308. We'll take another break, and we'll be back with more after this. We were talking a little bit about heartworms in the last segment, and we want to come back and talk about that a little bit more. Heartworms, are they exactly what it sounds like they are? Pretty darn close. Okay. So they are a parasite that is carried by mosquitoes. Okay, it only takes a bite from an infected mosquito into your dog or your cat, and there's potential for transmission. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, in the dog, the little microfilaria, as they grow and go through their growth cycle, they are going to migrate to the heart, and that's where the adults live. In the cat, they, they can be in the heart, but they're more in the um, vessels that enter and exit the heart mm. as far as that goes. Um, and cats... Is it, is it treatable? <laughs> for dogs, it's treatable. For cats, it technically is treatable, but it involves like open heart surgery, mm. open vessel surgery type situation. Dogs, you can... Um, do an injectable product to kill them it is almost a year process wow as far as it goes once we diagnose because you have to kill all the circulating microfilaria or the immature heartworms and then you have to attack those adults okay um and it involves injecting an arsenic like product in deep into the muscles of the back and when 
you're going through the process of killing those things. You also have risk of um, little pieces of worm breaking up, becoming clots, becoming, uh, you know, a potential for blood clot. So prevention um, is much... Uh, prevention is much better. Yes. yes. And, and, and way more affordable, quite honestly. Uh, to treat a, a dog for heartworms is very expensive. How often do you see heartworm cases? <laughs> way, way, way too often. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say on average we've been treating one new heartworm positive a month at the clinic. And that's just at your clinic? And that's just at, yes, that's right. just my clinic. <laughs> <laughs> and not not every other one uh, throughout. So it's not as if this is something that's rare. No. No, well, you can actually go online to the Companion Animal Parasite Council, and they keep a map of how many positive test results they have. And so you can watch the trends, mm. and you can watch the number grow throughout the course of the year. Um, now that they're only getting their stats from companies that report them. And so there's a couple major companies that report back to them. There are other companies out there or other clinics that maybe don't actually report those results. So that number may not be true. What is the best uh, product to uh, treat, to prevent, uh, to prevent heartworm? Yep. So there, there are a host of them. Again, I'm going to say... Ask your veterinarian Mm -hmm. um, for recommendations because in general, what you're going to get from your veterinarian is going to be a better product than you can get um, without us. Okay. Um, There are different products out there that cover, have different ranges of spectrum of coverage. Okay. You and I were just talking about um, a couple products that are going to be monthly. So given every 30 days and these ones are going to be more expensive because they do more things. But my favorite preventative is one that's going to prevent heartworms. And it's also going to deworm your pet once a month for the four major gastrointestinal parasites. Your hookworms, your roundworms, your whipworms, and your tapeworms. Um, not all preventatives are created equal and not all of them do all five of those things. Okay. Um, and then there is an injectable product out there called ProHeart. Um, they make a six month preventative. So you inject it into the dog and it provides protection for six months against the heartworm. And then it will treat hookworm, uh, hookworms and roundworms. It is not labeled for whips or tapes. Okay. Okay. Um, and then they have a 12 month version as well. So, so if you're forgetful, the 12 month version might be a good option. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We just set it up and you get it with your anal vaccination. So it's one more injection um, as far as that goes. I uh, always grew up watching The Price is Right. And at the end of every show, we know what Bob Barker would say. And that is, please have your you know, pets spayed or neutered. That uh, advice still important today because the number of, I just read a report today in the Southern Illinois actually, that there's been an explosion of animals being dropped off at the Jackson County Humane Society. And many of these animals, uh, there, there is not a home for them. And it's important that you have your pets fixed. I'm sure you can speak to that as well as anybody. Sure. <laughs> My motto is if they are not using those organs, they do not need to have them, okay. <laughs> quite honestly. Um, you know, just in general that 
overpopulation of pets and and not having a home for everybody Mm -hmm. okay but it also helps control what is getting bred because um let's face it not all pets are suitable for breeding and passing along the genetics um and it also reduces uh, some of the potential for cancer you know just like in people those reproductive organs can develop cancers Mm. okay so when they have them it is going to be potential okay um in particular the female can also develop a very severe infection of her uterus called a pyometra and a pyometra can make that dog very very sick um essentially pus fills up the Mm. organ And if it is closed and doesn't have a way for that pus to evacuate the body, then you have a couple options of it can explode into the body or we take it out with a spay. And then it's an emergency surgery, Mm. which is harder on the pet, harder on the doctor. Understood. As far as that goes. Well, I see sometimes there's even free clinics where, you know, animals are offered to be spayed. Not to happen all the time, but occasionally uh, Mm -hmm. grant programs are are given out. So always good to uh, remind folks to do that. You know, it's unfortunate because I'm uh, basically already out of time and we only (laughs) got to a, a handful of things that I wanted to get to. Uh, today, but I really appreciate you coming and uh, visiting with us, Nicole. Tell uh, the folks again how they can uh, reach out to you, uh, particularly the work you're doing with uh, Cardinal Veterinary Services, providing services to farmers. Sure. So my phone number is 618-357-0983. You can call, you can text, um, and then I have a Facebook page and a website uh, as far as that goes. So just get a hold of me. Um, my husband, Lance, also um, tends to randomly get calls as well. So if you know him, mm-hmm. you know, he knows how to get a hold of me. <laughs> um, we've had a few few situations of that, but the, the business number is probably the preferred method of contact. Um, I'll tell you, I work at Striegel three days a week, Monday through Wednesday. I see emergency calls um, from 5 to 10 p.m. Monday through Thursday. Uh, My regular hours for like cattle work or horse work or or things like that are Thursday and Friday from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then Saturdays and Sundays, I am available for calls. Sometimes I do make appointments somewhere between that 8 a.m. and 10 p.m. time frame. Um, I'm a mom of two young kids. And so um, I also will occasionally shut down so that I can spend time with my family. Because I think that's important, too. Very much. (laughs) Very much understood. Well, it's been a real pleasure uh, to visit with you. Uh, You've got a very wonderful personality. And I appreciate the fact that you're willing to come in and talk with me uh, today. Nicole Cressy from Cardinal Veterinary Services. We'll take the last break of the day, and that'll take us up to the top of the hour and Jay Seculo Radio.